Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 317. Happy Monday. Uh, I got a massive show today. I'm very, very excited. Trying to be low-key. I feel I'm kind of in, in rhythm. I feel really good. Uh, I, I, it doesn't matter. I, I feel great today. We're going to talk about the college football playoff, uh, share some thoughts. Gotta, I want to start with a unique kind of outside-the-box topic in a second, but we're also going to talk about Kansas City beating New Orleans. We'll talk about uh, the Jets won a game, which is kind of crazy to me. They beat the Rams of all teams, who when the Rams are good. I, I was kind of shocked. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about college football. We're going to break down championship weekend, uh, talk about the implications of what happened. We'll talk about the Packers, the Broncos, the Bills. We'll talk about the Browns. They won last night. Uh, they beat the Giants. A lot of great stuff is ahead, but I want to start with a topic that's a bit out of left field, uh, maybe. I want to talk about Cincinnati football, kind of. Uh, I put on my Instagram story, I asked people to send me who their top four teams in the college football playoff would be. And a lot of people, I mean, the obvious answers were Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State, but the fourth team grabbed my attention. Most people said Notre Dame. Some people said Texas A&M. But there were stragglers who argued vehemently that Cincinnati should be in. Cincinnati, Cincinnati. Some people even said Coastal Carolina. And, well, Coastal Carolina and Cincinnati, they're both undefeated. They were conference champions. Coastal Carolina is 11-0. Cincinnati is 9-0. Cincinnati won the AAC, the American Athletic Conference. Uh, Coastal had a great win over BYU at the end of the year. And, um... When I say names like Louisiana and Coastal Carolina and BYU and Liberty and Cincinnati and San Jose State and Tulsa and Buffalo, the thing that all those schools have in common is they had good records this year. They either went undefeated and won their conference or they, they, were, they had a one-loss season or, I mean, Tulsa lost two games, so that's near, and really neither here nor there. Um, but the college football playoff selection committee ignores all these teams. And I honestly, I, I agree with it. I don't really want to see BYU play Alabama. I don't want to watch Alabama play Coastal Carolina or Cincinnati. Like, I, I hate blowouts. They're not fun. They're not interesting. And so I'm glad that we are spared watching a small school team that's not really competitive with the top dogs playing against the top dogs. It wouldn't be fun. But every year, the college football selection committee, college football playoff selection committee, the the group of people that pick the top four teams, every single year, as long as it's been around, smaller schools like, again, Central Florida, Cincinnati, BYU, Liberty, they all get ignored. And I, I'm getting really tired of pretending. I just, I hate that there's this thing that everyone knows and nobody talks about it. Nobody really addresses it. We just kind of let it happen. And it, it's really weird to me because small schools, even before week one ever started, before even before BYU's entire schedule got gutted, they had to reschedule everything, BYU, Cincinnati, Coastal Carolina, Louisiana. Yeah, and that's, that's not Louisiana State. That's University of Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns. They never had a chance to make it into the college football play. But never, 0% chance. They never had a single opportunity to get in, no matter how their year went. And so I have a solution. There needs to be a, at least, look, need is a strong word. 
I really want there to be a separate college football national championship. So people may or may not know that Division I college football, uh, you know, in the FBS at the highest level, there are 10 conferences. There's the Power Five conferences and the Group of Five. And a lot of people, really everybody who follows college football, everybody knows what the group of the, what the Power Five is. The Power Five conferences are the SEC, the Big Ten, uh, the Big 12, the ACC, and the Pac-12. These are schools like Alabama, Clemson, Texas, Ohio State, USC, Oregon, Michigan, uh, Oklahoma. Like we, Everybody knows the big schools in college football. But I think even people that are into college football don't fully understand what the group of five conferences are. The Sun Belt, the Mountain West, Conference USA, uh, the MAC or the Mid-America Conference, uh, the AAC is also known as the Athletic American, the American Athletic Conference, and uh, these are smaller schools with less money, uh, but they're still considered Division One college football. You know, again, the Buffalo, Cincinnati, Bowling Green, uh, Boise State, Coastal Carolina, the Marshall Thundering Herd. Right? These are technically Division One schools that play at the same level as an Alabama or an Ohio State, but not really. And it's actually kind of insane to me that. In theory, like in a make-believe pretend world where on paper, technically, a school like Coastal Carolina is competing for the same championship as a school like Alabama. That's what the idea is. In theory, that's true. And it's not really true, but it's what we're told. It's what everybody talks about. We're kind of sold that idea. And it's ridiculous. It's stupid. I'm tired of pretending. It's not true. Cincinnati's never going to have an opportunity to win a national championship. It's just, it's not going to happen. <laughs> no matter how well they do, they're going to get ignored every single year. And in my opinion, college football needs a weight class. Meaning that, so in, in fighting, right? <laughs> you don't have a 120-pound guy fighting against a 300-pound guy. And they would never fight for the same championship, for the same title. Because it doesn't make any sense. It's not a fair fight. There's nothing. It's, it's an unreasonable fight to schedule. It's an unreasonable fight to assume could even be possible. And so my proposal is that we have weight classes in college football. We just need two of them. We need to differentiate the power five conferences, the, the top dogs, from the group of five conferences. The smaller schools, the group of five conferences, need their own championship. Again, Need is a strong word. They don't need a championship. I want them to have a championship. Because one of my pet peeves in college football is really crappy, stupid bowl games. Like, there's so many of them. Maybe not this year because of COVID, but during a normal year of college football, there's a ton of stupid, random bowl games. They don't mean anything. And imagine an eight team. So, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight teams in a group of five college football playoff. This year would be, here's an example, just roughly, it'd be like Louisiana, Coastal Carolina, BYU, Cincinnati, San Jose State, Liberty, Tulsa, and Buffalo. And I might be, take a team away, add a team, like, it's debatable. I'm not saying this is how, who I would choose, but it's roughly that. And in theory, on a, during a normal year, if you win your conference, you win the MAC or the Sun Belt or the Mountain West, then you're automatically into the group of five college football championship. And again, if, if UCF really was selected to go to the, the big boy college football championship, of course, go, go ahead. 
but it's never going to happen. So you come to the smaller one. And, you know, you do the, the five conferences plus three at-large teams, you know, Liberty, BYU, and Tulsa this year. And I, I, I would way rather watch that than crappy bowl games. I want to watch two undefeated teams who had good seasons and won their conference play in a game that's technically a bowl game, right? It's a, it's a playoff game. But if you win that playoff game, you get another one and another one. In the end, you can be crowned the group of five national champion. That sounds cool. That's something to play for. It'd be interesting. It'd be exciting. I, I would watch that. And I, I think it'd be really fascinating and fun. I mean, imagine real meaningful football games. And, and I think that some people, especially in the group of five, uh, would fear that separating from the power five would cause a problem, right? But that's silly because it's already separate. I mean, <laughs> to pre- I, again, I'm tired of pretending. Why are we pretending that the group of five and the power five are playing by the same rules in the same universe. They're not. The money's different. The skull, everything's massively different. It's not competitive. Like Oklahoma, every once in a while, you have a small team that upsets a big team and it's a, it's a big deal. And the reason why it's a big deal is because it's not expected. It's a rarity because normally the big school beats the small school nine out of 10 times. And that one, one out of 10 time that Appalachian state beats Michigan, I think that's a lo- even lower level school. So whatever. My point is being missed here. It's that it's a big deal when a small school beats a big school because it's not a fair fight, right? People go, oh my God, what an upset. And upsets are, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I, I'm, they, they happen every year, but it's not an upset when Iowa beats Iowa State because it's a fair fight. It's, not, it's, it's expected that either side can win. And so... I think if you separate the group of five from the power five and make a separate eight-team playoff, it might generate excitement and it might generate revenue. I know I would watch in a heartbeat. I would cover it. It'd be fun. I'd be interested. I would learn some new names. I would watch some new schools I haven't watched all year. It'd be awesome. It'd be a really good time. And so again, I think the small schools, the group of five, they should do their own thing. Stop pretending like you're ever going to be included in the Power Five's college football playoff because you're not. It's never going to happen. And uh, I would rather see those small schools make something different, do their own thing, and make something better than the crappy bowl games we get every year during a normal year because I, I think the crappy bowl games are not fun for anybody. And I would love a group of five college football playoff, a separate one from the stupid... And I think... Eight teams is better than four anyway. Do your own thing. Make it better. And I think it would get a lot of interest and be really, really fun and exciting to watch. It it can't be worse than, like, last year we had, what, like, the Bahamas Bowl? Like, (laughs) I I know the COVID has changed everything this year. There's way less bowl games, whatever. But during a normal year, it's bloated. There's a bunch of crappy bowl games. And whenever, if things go back to normal, I want to maybe do away with those crappy bowl games and find a better way to do it. In my opinion, this is a better way to do it. Uh, let's shift gears to the NFL. So I drink some water real quick. The Kansas City Chiefs but just beat... I got I to gotta restart. That's terrible. The Kansas City Chiefs just beat the New Orleans Saints 32-29. to And I'll be totally honest. I was disappointed with this game early on. Uh, you know, Drew Brees came out and was not strong at the beginning of this game. Uh, he was not good to start the game on Sunday. He made a lot of dangerous throws. He didn't look like himself. Uh, he had a bad interception. Kansas City also dropped an interception before Drew Brees even had one. 
So I, I really, I walked away from the beginning of the game going, man, it's too bad Drew Brees didn't have a game against a weaker team to kind of tune up and get back in rhythm before playing Kansas City, a really big game. Uh, and now it also didn't help that Drew Brees was missing Michael Thomas. He was out uh, with an injury and he, he'll, he'll be back by the postseason, but uh, missing your top receiver is one of the best in the NFL, if not the best in the NFL. It's never good for a quarterback like Drew Brees. And I, I'll be honest, man, I would be surprised if this wasn't Drew Brees' final year in the NFL. I think he's going to retire after this year. He's been hurt. He's slowing down. He's had more bad games this year than I can remember ever. Uh, and I, whenever Drew Brees is done playing, he's going to go to NBC and broadcast for them. Uh, and eventually Drew Brees and Mike Tirico are scheduled, and the plan is for them to be calling games together on Sunday Night Football to eventually replace uh, Chris Collinsworth and Al Michaels. Now, Drew Brees aside, uh, for me, this game was a healthy reminder of just how amazing Patrick Mahomes is. I I don't cover Patrick Mahomes very often. I don't talk about him a lot. Uh, I watch him play a lot, but I, he's overplayed. You, you ever like there, you ever have a song that everybody's playing it, or there's a meme, or like everybody's talking about this thing? And I see Patrick Mahomes everywhere in commercials, in the media on TV, on Instagram, like he's literally everywhere all the time. And so for that reason, I, I think I have this a, a adverse reaction to covering him. Like I don't, I don't want to do that. That's what everybody else does. Uh, but the reason why Patrick Mahomes is everywhere is because he's amazing. I mean, the hype is well-deserved. He, he is unbelievable to watch. And I was reminded of that watching Mahomes play on Sunday. He is so explosive as a quarterback. He so regularly and really easily throws for big chunks of yardage. Just like it's nothing, just over and over and over again. And overcomes scenarios and situations that are, I mean, for, here, for example, right? Uh, on a first and 10, Patrick Mahomes got sacked for an eight-yard loss. And for most teams, a sack like that would be crippling, right? You're, most quarterbacks go, man, it's second and 18, maybe a screen pass and get his yardage. Like you're screwed. Like your drive is, is ruined. But not for Patrick Mahomes, right? <laughs> on on second and 18, he threw for 10 yards to Sammy Watkins. Then on third and eight, he threw for 23 yards to Sammy Watkins again. And there's two amazing things that Patrick Mahomes does. Where Number one is that the way he moves behind the line of scrimmage and the reason why he's able to do that, uh, I, I think what really stands out to me about Patrick Mahomes is his comfort level on a football field. I mean, literally just, he's more comfortable than I've ever seen anybody else with bodies around him running around in a chaotic environment, almost running around like a chicken with his, with his head cut off, except he's calm. The, the chickens are everybody else just running around like crazy. He's, he's got bodies flying. He's making people miss. In chaos, Patrick Mahomes is phenomenal. He's very comfortable. And he just kind of runs around and plays backyard football. And it, it, it blows my mind how on a broken play, he can avoid a sack, extend a play, and then without setting his feet, without doing anything, he's effortlessly will throw a ball into a tight window for like a 40-yard gain. And he does it all the time, like over and over and over again. Or he had another play on, uh, on Sunday where uh, Kansas City ran a speed option. And normally you run the speed option, you, you re reach the guy who makes you either pitch the ball or not, and... It's a relatively quick play. Like, you, you meet one defender, you pitch the ball. Patrick Mahomes ran, like, 10, 15 yards downfield. Then he pitched the ball to Le'Veon Bell. And it's very rare to watch a speed option 
go that long downfield, and then the quarterback will pitch the ball. And Mahomes does stuff that is, you would call it reckless for other people, but he does it so effortlessly and so easily and so successfully that nobody cares. And and nobody, it's not, nobody calls him out because nobody ever would because he, he does it very well and it works most of the time. And I mean, he does crazy stuff with a ridiculous amount of comfort and does stuff that most quarterbacks could not even imagine doing. So the number two thing, I, I said he's really comfortable doing crazy stuff. It's also amazing how the ability Patrick Mahomes has to make literally any throw from any angle. His feet don't need to be set. He doesn't need to point his shoulder or, I mean, you you see guys in high school do like mechanic stuff where they're working on, you know, point your shoulder, close the shoulder. He, He fundamentally, Mahomes does nothing you're taught to do. He doesn't need to. It's crazy. He doesn't need to be facing his target. He doesn't need to have his feet set. And again, he makes throws that some quarterbacks could not even imagine making if their feet were set, if they had the right proper mechanics. He'll, on the run, make a 40-yard throw into a tiny window that I I could never have dreamed of making in my entire career. And that a lot of quarterbacks would look at and go, I I mean, again, there's a reason why this guy is hyped up the way he is. And I was reminded of that uh, on Sunday. Patrick Mahomes plays real football. As if it's a video game. I mean, he, he treats real football like it's Madden. The way he runs around, the throws he makes, the stuff he does, and he makes it look effortless. And I, I just am blown away by Patrick Mahomes. It's kind of crazy. And look, the Saints did good stuff on defense. The New Orleans Saints had some good plays, and they got Patrick Mahomes in third and long, and you know, sacked him, and it, none of it mattered. Literally nothing New Orleans did on defense ended up mattering in that game where Mahomes kept overcoming obstacle after obstacle, third and long, great coverage, pressure. Nothing the Saints did on defense even mattered. It's like, okay. And I get it. It was a close game at the end, but Mahomes was ahead the whole time, and Kansas City had the lead. Now, the Saints made it interesting at the end, but the Chiefs just, (laughs) I don't know, man. It's crazy to me. And then, of course, by the way, yeah, Andy Reid is the coach of Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes got the perfect coach for him where Andy Reid's creativity and the way he uses motions and the unique play design, it's this amazing pairing of coach and quarterback that I, it's unbelievable to me. It's like, how, how do, we're actually lucky to get to watch it. I mean, I, I hope people recognize and realize, and, and the NFL will evolve and change. We'll see more and more people with a play style like Patrick Mahomes because the game is changing and evolving and uh, it, it's just going to get more fluid and more, off balance and more people doing chaotic stuff, but doing it successfully. But man, I, I just would imagine that Andy Reid is having a time of his life coaching Patrick Mahomes and getting to work with this unbelievable player at quarterback who's the, the best I've ever seen and not even close. Like it's Mahomes is so much better than everybody else. And we like, I'm saying stuff everybody talks about, but I never talk about it. So I'm sharing my heart here. I avoid talking about the guy because I know he's everywhere and I don't want to be the cliche guy ranting about how great Mahomes is. But here I am. And I I just, it's like, oh my gosh, why have I never said this before? It's crazy to me. Now, uh, I know that, uh, here's how great Kansas City is. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, their running back, just got hurt. It's unfortunate. He's out for the rest of the regular season. They're hoping he can come back for the playoffs. And on one hand, I'm like, oh man, that's like a great player. It's our first round pick. Clyde Edwards Hilaire is phenomenal. However, they have Le'Veon Bell. Their backup running back is a former all pro, a guy they they signed from the Jets who got released because of 
Who knows why? Like, their backup running back is none other than Le'Veon Bell. It's like, of course it is. They just reload, and they're just so talented. Literally everywhere. And so I fully expect Kansas City to win a Super Bowl. If that changes, I will let you know. But right now, I am all aboard the the Kansas City Chiefs train. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe anything other than them winning a Super Bowl right now. They have, by the way, they have a great defense too. Nobody talks about the Chiefs' defense, how good they are, how many plays they make. Uh, I know they're easily forgotten because the offense is so dominating because Mahomes and Andy Reid. And uh, don't forget about Tyron Matthew and that defense. They are a... They make a lot of plays. Brashad Breeland. I mean, they are, there are guys on that defense that make a lot of really good plays. They did it again against Drew Brees, and I think people, it's easy to ignore Kansas City's defense, how good they are. They're very well coached by Steve Spagnuolo, their defensive coordinator. They got some good playmakers. They make plays. I mean, I, I just think that Kansas City is easily the best team in the NFL. And, and if they ever get in a pickle, it doesn't matter because their quarterback is literally so good, it feels like he can overcome anything. And I don't know who can beat Kansas City. The Bills are good. I like Buffalo. Uh, I think, really, they're a year away. They need a little more help uh, in the run defense. But, hey, maybe Kansas, maybe Kansas City gets COVID or something happens. Like, the Bills could beat Kansas City if KC had an off day. And the Steelers are good, but they're, I mean, look, they got, they're, they're far from perfect. They got too many problems. They're, they got very inconsistent play. Pittsburgh has flaws. Uh, Green Bay has limitations at receiver, and their defense cannot stop Kansas City. The Rams have a great defense. They could stop KC, but I don't trust their quarterback, Jared Goff. I mean, the Rams just lost to the Jets. So I like <laughs> I don't know how you trust the Rams to beat Kansas City. New Orleans and Seattle, they can't beat KC. And so I'm just not sure who can beat the Chiefs. I, I, I will see what happens. But uh, until if something changes, I will let you know. But until further notice, my belief is that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl again this year. And uh, I, I kind of, I expect that. I mean, it, they should be the favorite. They, I'm sure they are the favorite. And I, I believe Kansas City is going to win the Super Bowl this year. Uh, I guess it'll be February 2021 by the time that happens. But the 2020 season is going to be won by the Kansas City Chiefs. All right. Um, on Sunday Night Football, the Browns beat the Giants 22 6. Uh, it was not an impressive win. The Giants are they're five and nine. They're not a very good football team. But even though this win was not impressive by the Browns, it was encouraging because the Browns won a game they're supposed to win. I mean, and that's anytime that happens, you go, okay, good. Like the Browns are exactly what I thought they were. The Browns are ten and four. They're a good team. They're a playoff team. If you're a good playoff team, you don't lose to a, a team that's got a losing record who's playing a backup quarterback. Like. The Giants had a backup quarterback, Colt McCoy, starting for them. And uh, if you're the Browns in that situation, you have to win convincingly. They did. So I walked away going like, okay, like, good. I'm, I'm encouraged as a person who, shamelessly, I root for the Browns simply because they've been so bad for years. I just, I want to see Cleveland have some kind of glimmer of hope. And they do this year. It's really cool. Even more encouraging, other than the Browns winning and doing it in a convincing fashion, was Baker Mayfield playing and having a phenomenal day for the Browns uh, as their quarterback. Uh, you know, the best part of this Giants team is their defense, and Baker shredded them. I mean, Baker was 29 for 32 passing at 297 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions, no turnovers at all, by the way. No fumbles, no, no, no interceptions, nothing. Baker played very clean, very good. I mean, this is, Baker's trending upward, and I, I've been on the Baker train for a while going like, Pay attention, Baker's getting better. He's getting better. And this was a confirmation for me. Oh, yeah. 
the coach, the quarterback, the Browns. I I bought into all of it, and I was right to buy into them. And uh, I mean, if right now Cleveland is the fifth seed in the AFC, ten and four, man. Like, how cool is that? That I mean, the Browns have a better record than the Patriots. The Browns have a better record than Tom Brady. The Browns have the same record as uh, I think the New Orleans Saints are ten and four too. So yeah, they are, which is that unbelievable, man. It, it's so wild to be able to say that Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, and Baker Mayfield all have the same record after uh, fifteen weeks of NFL football. It's cool to me, man. I, I I am very happy for Cleveland. They have reason to be happy, and they have reason to be confident in their team. I don't know that the Browns are going to win a playoff game. I don't think it matters. They make the playoffs, like, bam. I mean, it's Kevin Zafanski's justified every, everything, any belief you've ever had in Baker, everything. Like, it's working in Cleveland. I'm so excited about it, and I, I felt really good about the Browns after beating the Giants on Sunday night football. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll talk about the college football championship weekend. That's Alabama. That's Ohio State. That's Clemson. Uh, Northwestern challenged Ohio State. Interesting. Fun stuff there. Uh, we'll talk about the college football playoff rankings. Do I agree with them? Why or why not? Later, we'll talk about the Jets winning a game, uh, the Dolphins, USC, Oregon, uh, Broncos, Packers, Raiders, uh, the Chargers, Justin Herbert. A lot of good stuff ahead. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right all right, we are back. Hope we're doing very, very well. Let's jump in and talk about college football's championship weekend. In the SEC championship game, Alabama beat Florida 52-46. to And uh, this was a fantastic game. Loved watching it. High-level quarterback play. It made me so happy that all year my thought about the SEC has been, thank goodness that finally the SEC figured out how to coach quarterbacks. Last year we saw Joe Burrow, Atua, we got Mac Jones, Kyle Trask. There's good quarterbacks all over this conference. And it makes me so happy. I'm like, I'm like, finally, the SEC figured out quarterbacks. And it makes the SEC so much more enjoyable to watch for me personally. I'm like, ah, like I love high-level quarterback play. And the SEC has it now. Uh, by the way, aside from quarterbacks, I mean, there was so much NFL talent in this game. You had uh, a couple standouts. There were three first-round picks, in my opinion. Uh, Kyle Pitts, the tight end for Florida. He had seven catches for 129 yards and a touchdown. You had Alabama receiver Devontae Smith. He had 15 catches for 184 yards receiving and two more touchdowns for him. And then the guy who blew me away in this game was Alabama's running back, Najee Harris. It's weird to me, by the way, how are Mac Jones and Devontae Smith uh, in the Heisman contention win, in my opinion, uh, and no knocking them. They're great, by the way. Like I, I, Mac Jones, I'm a huge fan. I've really grown on him all year. Devontae Smith blew me away. Like, he's a first-round pick easily. Uh, I think might even be the first, probably should be the first receiver drafted in the 2021 NFL Draft. But how can the best player in college football be either of them when Najee Harris is on their team, who clearly, in my opinion, is the best player on Alabama's team? Against Florida, Najee Harris not only had 31 carries for 178 yards and two rushing touchdowns. He also had uh, five passes caught. He, he caught five passes for 69 yards receiving and three more touchdowns. So Najee Harris had five total touchdowns on the day. Oh, yeah, by the way, he was great in pass protection as well. No one talks about this from running backs. It's like a super, from an NFL perspective, if your running back cannot protect the quarterback in pass pro, 
It's not going to work long term. Najee Harris gets in the trenches. He digs in deep. He protected Mac Jones multiple times from getting it. The reason why Devontae Smith was catching the ball is because Najee Harris is in there in the backfield putting blocks on the guys, keeping Mac Jones, Mac Jones upright. And I just I walked away so impressed with Najee Harris. I, I really love the guy. I think he's not going to win the Heisman, but man, if there's anybody on Alabama's team that should win the Heisman, it is Najee Harris. Now, watching this game, I was really reminded of how many potential 2021 quarterbacks are going to be in the, I guess, how many quarterbacks are going to be in the 2021 NFL draft, potentially. I mean, you look around, you have, of course, you have Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. Of course, obviously, you have Zach Wilson from BYU. And then maybe Kyle Trask and maybe Mac Jones. They're both eligible. They could go. Uh, you have Trey Lance from North Dakota State. You have Jamie Newman in the mix. I Both Kyle Trask and Mac Jones have grown on me the more I've watched them play this year. Kyle Trask, I was like, I, I really was not impressed with him last year. I mean, people liked him. He won games, and that's good. Like, he had good stats and stuff. But I, Kyle Trask has made so many NFL-level throws this year. Great ball location, especially down the sideline on back shoulder throws. I, I'm so impressed with him. Kyle Trask reminds me a lot of Drew Brees, where he's a guy who his strength is accuracy. His ball location is phenomenal. He's a good decision maker. He doesn't have the strongest arm in the world. But I, I look at Kyle Trask and go, he's a taller version of Drew Brees. And if Drew Brees does retire, by the way, I desperately want to see New Orleans draft Kyle Trask. I think he'd be a great fit there. I mean, imagine the dynamic duo you would develop between Kyle Trask and Michael Thomas in New Orleans. I mean, the, his ball location thrown to Michael Thomas would be phenomenal. And then also imagine Kyle Trask being coached by Sean Payton. Like, oh my, I want that so badly. And then there's Mac Jones, Alabama quarterback. And I wonder if he's going to enter the NFL draft uh, this year. I think he's a first round pick if he does. He's at least in the conversation for sure. And really, I mean, if if he enters the draft, the number three quarterback off the board is going to be interesting because a team like, for example, Carolina, if, they, if Carolina is the third team in the NFL draft who is picking a quarterback, would they take Zach Wilson out of BYU? Or would they draft Mac Jones out of Alabama? It's actually a real conversation in my head. I go, Mac Jones has made a name for himself. He's played very, very well. And, uh, I mean, Mac Jones' play style reminds me a lot of Matt Ryan. And it's kind of funny, both Matt Ryan, Matt Ryan was coached by Steve Sarkeesian in Atlanta. Uh, the current offensive coordinator at Alabama right now is Steve Sarkeesian coaching Mac Jones. Maybe that's why their footwork in the pocket looks similar. Uh, but both are not super mobile. That's part of why their footwork looks very similar. I, I would imagine that even Mac Jones might study Matt Ryan. And both have a ton of arm talent. I just, I see so many similarities between Matt Ryan and Mac Jones. Now, I also know that Mac Jones has a lot of talent around him. People say, well, he's got amazing receivers and a great running back and a great offensive line. And you're not wrong, right? For sure. It helps to throw to the best players in the country. Absolutely. But also, give credit to Mac Jones. He's got good habits. And Mac Jones, wouldn't. another quarterback could win at Alabama, but another quarterback could not do exactly what Mac Jones is doing in Alabama, elevating their team. There's a reason they're the number one team in the nation it's in large part because of their quarterback. I mean, he navigates the pocket very, very well, sliding to avoid pressure. He steps up in the pocket. He's disciplined. He's accurate. Dude has a huge arm. I buy into Mac Jones 
Big time. I'm a big fan. I love the guy. And there was a really cool moment after the game. Tim Tebow was actually interviewing Mac Jones. And I guess they're both from the Jacksonville area. I didn't know that about Mac Jones. And uh, Tebow asked Mac, he said, where do you get your mindset? This focused and this disciplined, intense attitude. And Mac Jones said, honestly, I get it from you. And it's kind of a cool moment where Mac Jones revealed that growing up, Tebow was his favorite player. And I went, ah, that's awesome. I love that. I mean, I relate to that. I remember watching Tim Tebow talk about his work ethic and it really inspired me as a kid. And so I guess in the end, look, I walked away going, Mac Jones is awesome. Kyle Trask is phenomenal. There's a lot of NFL talent here on this field. Uh, But Florida could not overcome the rough start they had in this game. Uh, Bama got ahead and Alabama never looked back. They had the lead and they never really gave it up. Uh, Florida had four key mistakes at the beginning of the game where uh, they had two penalties that extended drives on defense for uh, giving Alabama first downs. Kyle Trask had a throw to Justin Shorter that uh, Justin was wide open deep. Kyle Trask missed it. That's a huge opportunity. You missed out on seven points. Uh, and then Florida picked off Mac Jones. Huge turn of events. And then on the, the interception return, <laughs> Mechie just rocked whoever the defender was for Florida. And uh, Florida fumbled the ball and gave it back to Alabama. It's like, oh, what could have been wasn't. And so otherwise, other than those four mistakes by Florida, both teams played very, very well. It was a really intense, really fun game to watch. And uh, Bama Bama narrowly won. But it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal game all around. And a a hard-fought, well-played game by both Alabama and by Florida. Now... That's it. Let me drink water real quick. In the ACC championship, Clemson beat Notre Dame 34 to 10. And it was a blowout after the first quarter. The first quarter was interesting. Notre Dame had the lead for a while. And then Clemson had a long touchdown and never looked back. I mean, Clemson just ran away with the game. And uh, really the best story here, because the game wasn't that good. The game was a blowout. The best story here was that after the game, Dabo Sweeney, Clemson's head coach, said that it would be a crying shame if the Heisman did not attach their name to Trevor Lawrence. And I I tend to agree. Now, Dabo Sweeney continued by saying that I know it's become a stat award, but he's the best player in college football. I paraphrased that last line. He said it's pretty obvious if you watch college football, he's the best player. Again, I agree with all that. And the Heisman Trophy is a brand. I mean, I watched, I've seen that Kyler Murray, Tim Tebow commercial, that anticipation in the car a bazillion times. We all have seen the Heisman Trophy commercials if you live in America and watch any football. The Heisman Trophy is a brand and they want to be attached to people who continue to succeed after college football. The bigger your name is later down the road, the bigger they can use you and market you and be around you. You notice you never see RG3 in a Heisman commercial because he's not really a star now. I think Trevor Lawrence is pretty likely to be a star five years from now. They want to be attached to a guy who's going to be a star later down the road. And I also want to say that, you know, the Heisman brand. So first of all, Heisman brand might want to attach themselves to Trevor Lawrence. Absolutely. But also, I I thought that Who's the best player in college football? Look at the difference between, you know, Notre Dame beat Clemson last time they played without Trevor Lawrence. This time, 
with Trevor Lawrence, they blew out Notre Dame. Like, it wasn't even close. I mean, if that isn't a shining example of how valuable and how great Trevor Lawrence is, I don't know what is. Trevor Lawrence against Notre Dame really secured, I thought, the number one overall pick. Part of that was Justin Fields had a bad day, had two interceptions against Northwestern. But did you watch Trevor Lawrence the way he moved around in the pocket? I mean, the reason why Clemson blew out Notre Dame was Trevor Lawrence made throw after throw after throw. The way he moved behind the line of scrimmage in the backfield, avoiding the rush, keeping plays alive. Um, Trevor was amazing. And Trevor Lawrence is going to be the number one overall pick. I think he should win the Heisman Trophy. I, I would not argue that. he's the best. Like, is it really the best player in college football? Or is it about the most impressive numbers? That's the question. We'll find out this year. Uh, I, I am team Trevor. I think Trevor should win the Heisman Trophy this year. There's other guys who are in the, I, I'm not going to be angry or be like, oh, other people don't deserve it. Like there are other people who deserve it. And it'd be interesting. It'd be fun. I'm happy for other people to win. But if I were to pick the Heisman Trophy winner, it would be Trevor Lawrence. And again, part of that is the brand. Part of that is the legacy. I, I think Dabo Sweeney, I'm sure he prepared that thought to say it that exact way, but he's not wrong. That, I mean, it would be a crying shame if the Heisman Trophy did not attach their name to Trevor Lawrence. He, he's saying Trevor Lawrence is going to be a star. The Heisman Trophy better get on board and go along with that. And I, I think he's totally right. Ohio State beat North... Oh, beat. How was it beat? Ohio State beat Northwestern 22-10 to in the Big Ten championship game. It was a funny game to watch. Uh, Northwestern competed very, very hard. I love their head coach, uh, Pat Fitzgerald. Uh, by the way, it is worth mentioning that Ohio State had 22 players unavailable because of COVID, including their top receiver, Chris Olave. They actually were missing two receivers in the game. Missing Chris Olave appeared to have a big impact on Ohio State and their quarterback, Justin Fields. Justin Fields had two interceptions. He looked out of sync with receivers all day. There were times where receivers were not where I'm sure he thought they were going to be. There were times, there was a, an interception that Justin Fields threw where his receiver inexplicably turned up field rather than continuing to run his out route. I was like, what are you doing? That's oh, not right. And I felt kind of bad for Justin Fields. Uh, it also was not his best game, though, either. There was a play where he was like getting sacked and he tried to force the ball into coverage. Reminded me a lot of the mistakes he made against Indiana. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, Trevor Lawrence secured the number one overall pick for sure. There were going to be conversations about whether or not Justin Fields should be the number one guy compared to Trevor. I think all those conversations in the NFL came to an end, uh, partially when the Jaguars beat, uh, when the Jaguars, excuse me, uh, lost. The Jets, sorry, the Jets won, which made it so the Jaguars now, if the draft was tomorrow, would have the number one overall pick. We'll see what happens in the final two weeks. I'm pretty sure it's obvious now. There's no debate. Trevor Lawrence should be the number one overall pick. Justin Fields helped solidify that with a bad game on Saturday. And uh, Northwestern, I want to give them a shout out. They got really good corners. Like I, part of why Northwestern had a great year. They're, they went six and two. Uh, they had a, a great defense, and their corners are phenomenal. And they're not even their best corner, but a guy that I think is a standout to me is a freshman. Defensive back, a corner, Brandon Joseph, guy I had never heard anything about before this game, uh, found out he leads the nation in interceptions. Part of that, again, is probably because he's not the best corner on Northwestern, so other people are testing him. Like, oh, go attack the freshman, and he makes them pay. He has six interceptions this year in eight games. That's 
the the best in college football, which is ridiculous and crazy. I just walked away very, very impressed with Northwestern. I thought, you know, Peyton Ramsey, their quarterback, he had some turnovers and I, you know, a, a costly fumble that gave Ohio State a a field goal, and then he had two interceptions. And I, but I thought other than those turnovers, which are pretty big, I mean, that's why Northwestern lost. And really, Northwestern had the ball with six minutes left, and they could not get a drive when they needed one, so they lost because of their offense, but. I still walked away very impressed with their fight and the spirit they had, and I love their head coach, Pat Fitzgerald. And again, I think Northwestern had a, cue, a couple key mistakes that cost them with a, uh, they threw an interception on the nine-yard line going in. Uh, you can't have that in the red zone like that. Uh, they missed a field goal. They had that fumble by Peyton Ramsey that led to an Ohio State field goal. That's a, you know, three points, three points, and then maybe a touchdown. So, they, if they don't have those mistakes and they can, if they could have moved the ball at the end of the game, they might have won this game. I mean, Northwestern really had an opportunity to beat Ohio State. They couldn't capitalize, but the fact that they were even in the game with an opportunity to beat Ohio State, that's impressive to me. And so I just uh, shout out to Northwestern. Good on them. Again, Justin Fields was 12 for 27 passing. Had 114 yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions. Justin Fields was struggling. And so I want to give a lot of credit to the Ohio State head coach, Ryan Day. He adjusted. And Ryan Day was willing to basically run the ball into oblivion. He said, I'm going to keep running and running and running until we get stopped. And frankly, Northwestern had no answer. They could not stop Ohio State running the football. Uh, You know, Ohio State had 399 yards rushing on the day. Trey Sermon, their transfer running back from Oklahoma, who really hasn't had a very loud, you know, Master Teague has been the lead guy for Ohio State all year. Trey Sermon exploded in this game, had 29 carries for 331 yards, two touchdowns. That's a new Ohio State rushing record for the most rushing yards in a game. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. And Ohio State really showed that they're a great team. And they did this twice this year where they won games where Justin Fields was struggling against Indiana. Justin Fields did not have his best game. The team rallied and won anyway. And then again, here in the Big Ten Championship game, when Justin Fields was having a rough day against Northwestern, and uh, part of it was receivers, part of it was, I guess he hurt his hand. He said he he hurt his hand, you know, his his throwing thumb, uh, which isn't good. Uh, But when Justin Fields is having a bad day, the team ran the ball very well. They played great defense. They stepped up around him. And if you ever needed evidence that Ohio State is a great football team that deserves to be in the college football playoff, it's the fact that they won even when their quarterback was bad. So I walked away very, very impressed with Ohio State. And, uh, man, we'll see what they do against Clemson. We'll get a rematch of Clemson and Ohio State on uh, down the road. I think I think New Year's Day, I believe, because I think it's how – maybe it's before I, – I don't know the schedule. I apologize. I didn't look it up. Uh, whenever Clemson plays Ohio State in the college football playoff a rematch of last year, uh, I remember Justin Fields had that interception at the end of the game to seal the fate of Ohio State. We'll get a rematch this year. Should be really, really fun. Uh, and uh, Ohio State is the Big Ten Conference champion. All right, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we will react to the college football playoff rankings. Do I agree? Yes or no? Who's the fourth team? Who would have I chosen to be the fourth team? Does it line up with the college football playoff selection committee? 
Uh, those and much more when I return. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope we're doing very, very well. In case you missed it, the final college football playoff rankings were announced. Uh, number one, you have Alabama. They're 11-0. They won the SEC. Makes sense. I agree. Totally like it. Number two, you have Clemson. They are 10-1. and one. They won the ACC. Okay. Uh, number three, you have Ohio State. They're 6-0. and They won the Big Ten. Fair enough. They're a good team. They're the number three seed. And number four overall, you have Notre Dame at 10-1. and one. Uh, They lost in the ACC championship game to Clemson. And... The more I think about this, uh, the more I understand why the decision was made to choose Notre Dame as the fourth team in the college football playoff. I also don't like it. So the number five team is Texas A&M. And uh, Texas A&M will play uh, University of North Carolina in the Orange Bowl. They are out of the college football playoff. And my... Number four team would have been Texas A&M, in my opinion. Now, the college football playoff committee has made a statement with their decision. Uh, Really, they were saying and showing that they would rather Alabama play against Notre Dame rather than Texas A&M. And uh, so Notre Dame versus Alabama is going to happen down the road. And then we'll get Clemson against Ohio State. Uh, The rematch of last year's college football playoff game. And uh, remember, Clemson eliminated Justin Fields on Ohio State last year. So look, again, I don't agree with Notre Dame uh, getting the number four spot in the college football playoff over Texas A&M. And I don't even know that saying I don't agree. It's it's more just I don't like it. It's I understand why they chose Notre Dame. I found it a bit frustrating, though. Uh, both Notre Dame and Texas A&M have lost one game. Uh, the only loss Texas A&M had was they lost by 28 points to Alabama, who's the number one team in the country. So you would think if you're going to lose to anybody, it might as well be the team that the playoff committee selected to be the number one team in the country. Uh, now, again, they lost by 28 points. That's not a good loss. That wasn't really close. Uh, Notre Dame, their one loss was to the number two team in the country, Clemson, uh, by 24 points on Saturday. And again, I understand why Notre Dame was chosen. Notre Dame beat one of the top three teams in the playoffs. So Notre Dame's uh, schedule, I think, has been deemed as a very challenging one. I don't really buy that. Everyone's talking about how, you know, Notre Dame's strength of schedule. I go, like, who did they beat? Like, they, they beat UNC. They they beat, I mean, Clemson's a good win, like, for sure. But also, Notre Dame beat Clemson when their starting quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, didn't play due to COVID, and it was very, very close. Like, Notre Dame barely beat Clemson, who had a backup quarterback in the game. Like, I, what am I missing here? I, I, I just, huh. And, oh, yeah, by the way, this is a Notre Dame team that barely beat Louisville. It was like, it was 12-7. to 7. Louisville went 1-4. and four. Like, I, I just, maybe it's because I don't, I'm not the biggest Notre Dame guy. Like, it's not that I hate Notre Dame. I don't really, I'm not endeared to Notre Dame. Like, I'm not like, Oh, yeah, the great Notre Dame. I don't have a big affinity for them. I'm, I'm just kind of indifferent, and I don't, I'm not swayed by their, the grandiose of them, I guess. 
and I, I I get they're a big fan base. I get that they are. I mean, I'm sure. Like, but isn't Texas A&M as well? Like, I don't know. I don't know if this is a financial decision entirely. Uh, I I I just I think the biggest thing that hurt Texas A&M was that. You know, they already played Alabama this year. So maybe people said, you know, we don't want a rematch between Alabama and Texas A&M. Let's give us a game that no one's seen this year, which is Notre Dame against Texas A&M. I will say, though, here are some true just statements about Texas A&M and about college football right now. Uh, Texas A&M went 8-1. and Their only loss was to the number one ranked Alabama team. They won eight games in a row. In the SEC, and I, I get it that Notre Dame won ten games, but they did it in the ACC. Even a bad you know, string of SEC teams is better, in my opinion, than the ACC. So I, I, I don't really, I, I don't know how you pick. It's, it's weird to me. People are saying strength of schedule, and I, I just don't agree. I, I don't, I don't agree with that. And you know, to win eight games in a row in the SEC. Meanwhile, again, Ohio State didn't even play eight games. So I, I don't know. I, it's it's weird. I, I feel frustrated that Texas A&M got left out. Uh, you know, I, but I also do believe that Ohio State belongs in. Even though Ohio State didn't play, uh, you know, as many games as the other teams, they're one of the four best teams in the country. And I think it'd be a real tragedy to leave one of the best teams in the country out. Now, I will say if you snub a team who didn't play, who played enough games, and then you leave a team. Like, imagine this. What if Ohio State gets COVID, and they play, but, like, without their quarterback, without a bunch of star players? Then it would be really frustrating that Texas a was left out in that in that sense. Um, but I I don't know here, man. I, I will say, if Ohio State hadn't canceled three games this year, they still would have been undefeated. Like, the, the three games that Ohio State didn't play were... Uh, two and four Michigan. They didn't play a two and three Maryland team, and they didn't play a two and six Illinois football team. So combined, the teams that Ohio State didn't play this year were six and thirteen. You can pretty much guarantee Ohio State would have been nine and zero if they'd played a full schedule this year. Uh, I, I would have put Texas A and M in as the number four team again. Notre Dame barely beat Louisville. Uh, 12 to seven. And that's a Louisville team that went one and four this year. Like it's not, it's not like Louisville, some impressive team. It's just that Notre Dame, I think is a little bit overhyped who they got some good players and made some good plays at the right time. Like I, I will say I was impressed with their win over Clemson, but that was a Clemson team, not at full strength. Uh, but as much as I'm complaining about the outcome and I, I would have picked up you know, Texas A&M and all this stuff, I'm not going to fight it anymore. I, I wanted to do this segment and say my opinion, uh, but I'm not going to fight it too hard because I think no matter who the number four team uh, chosen was, it wasn't going to be a team that would win the national championship. It's likely Bama would have beaten Texas A&M or Notre Dame or Cincinnati or whoever, whatever, whatever team you want to put in there. I'm pretty sure Alabama would beat them. And uh, it's likely that Bama's going to crush Notre Dame whenever that game happens. And uh, I, I also kind of on a, if you're thinking about Texas A&M, and if you're a Texas A&M fan and you're frustrated, you feel like you got screwed over and snubbed, I'll say this. Would you rather finish the year losing to Alabama in the college football playoff? Which And, and maybe you win. I don't think you win, but maybe you win. I, I mean, I, I like your quarterback. I like Jimbo Fisher. I like where you're at going. The program's trending in the right direction. Would you rather risk losing uh, your last game of the year? Or here's the probable ending for uh, Texas A&M. 
you're going to play North Carolina in the Orange Bowl. You're probably going to win that game maybe by a lot. I think it's better to go out with a win and say we got screwed, but we did everything we could control. Isn't it better to kind of go like, ah, we did what we could and we got screwed over rather than saying, you know, getting in and losing. So I I think for the health of for A&M, for recruiting, all that, it can't hurt for A&M to crush uh, North Carolina in the Orange Bowl. And uh, we'll see if that happens down the road in, in the, I guess, guess it'll be New Year's Day when that game happens. Now, on Saturday, the Bills beat the Denver Broncos 48-19 to on Saturday. I don't have a lot to say about Buffalo. Uh, they won a game they were supposed to win. They beat uh, the, the Denver Broncos. Josh Allen had four touchdowns, two passing, two rushing. And uh, we're watching Josh Allen just grow a lot this year. It's very, very cool. Uh, Stephon Diggs in this game had 11 catches for 147 yards. Cole Beasley had eight catches for 112 yards. And I thought the coolest thing from this game on Saturday, you know, the Bills win, they beat Denver. Buffalo has clinched and has won the AFC East title. And it's the first time in 25 years that Buffalo has won the AFC East. It's also the first time, I mean, so I guess before this, the Patriots won 11 years in a row. So the Patriots' dominance is over. The Bills are the new top dogs. And a skeptic would say, like, wow, like all it took was COVID and all it took was Tom Brady to leave. And you can be skeptical if you want. Uh, but the Bills are 11-3. and three. They're legit. And I, they're playing very good football. And I look at the Bills right now, and they have a Super Bowl window open for the next, like, three years. You know, this year, next year, the year after next, maybe longer. We'll see what, you know, how things work out. Uh, but the roster and the head coach, they're in a position right now where the Bills are in position to have a window to win a Super Bowl in the next couple of years. And uh, I really do hope that the Bills' offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, feels a sense of unfinished business where he's like, man, I we've been building this thing and I got to see it all the way through. Because a lot of people say that Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator in Buffalo, could leave and go be a head coach. And I do hope that he leaves after Buffalo makes a Super Bowl run. I think it'd be better for his resume anyway. If Buffalo, even if Buffalo doesn't win, let's say Buffalo goes there and they lose, but you're like, hey, I got the Bills to a Super Bowl. Uh, that's a good thing for your resume. Like it would make players on your team that you're head coach of eventually look at you with some belief and say, wow, we believe in this guy. He took Buffalo to a Super Bowl. He, he coached Josh Allen. He turned him around. And then, then not to mention, like, the first of all, the, I, ho I hope that Brian Dable stays for the journey. Like, if he wants to be a head coach someday, the lessons he can learn from the journey of turning Buffalo into a team that makes a Super Bowl berth, win or loss, that journey is good for anybody who wants to be a head coach. I, I just hope that Brian Dable sticks around for a little while longer until the Bills can make a really good uh, run at a Super Bowl. And I, I just uh, I, I hope that Brian Dable doesn't leave before that can happen because my fear is that that could be the thing that derails Buffalo. If they lose their offensive coordinator, Josh Allen, who's made so much progress, has to get a new system and a new coach. I would hate to see that happen. So I am hoping that Brian Dable stays with the Buffalo Bills a little bit longer, even though he's going to have some job offers probably, most likely, this offseason coming up.
So um, the Broncos lost to the Bills 48-19. to And I knew that Denver was not going to beat Buffalo. Like, this was not a game I went like, oh, man, dang it, Denver lost. Like, no, I, I never expected Denver to win this game. Uh, all I needed to see was I needed Drew Locke to play well. Because uh, I keep saying, I've said this a lot this year, let's give Drew Locke, the Broncos' second-year quarterback, some patience. I want to see Drew Locke get to his third year next year. It'll be year two in the Pat Shermer offense, the new offense that is the offense that is new this year. Let's have Drew Locke have a real offseason with Pat Shermer's offense. Uh, next year, we'll have a team at full strength that's not injured all around him. And next year could be big for the Denver Broncos. So I, I, I want to give Drew Locke patience, but in order to feel good about giving him patience, I need to see some progress from Drew Locke as the year comes to a close. And I think he is making progress. I think he is getting better. Uh, I also got to say, it would be kind of messed up, frankly, if Denver, you know, last year in in Drew Locke's rookie year, his offensive coordinator was Rich Scangarello. And Rich Scangarello and Drew Locke worked pretty well together. I thought thought things went pretty well for Rich Scangarello and Drew Locke. Like, Drew Locke had a good start and a couple good games. And then in year two, they, they, they fire Rich Gangrel. They hire a new offensive coordinator, Pat Shimmer. So they're making Drew Locke learn a new offense uh, with no offseason. Plus, then you look at Denver had a bunch of injuries all around him. And if you punish Drew Locke for no offseason, injuries all around him, learning a new system, I think it's kind of weird and kind of wrong. I mean, I have patience for Drew Locke. Uh, and I actually have patience for Drew Locke where I don't for Daniel Jones, the quarterback of the Giants. They're very similar situations where Drew Locke and Daniel Jones, they're in their second year, new head coach, sorry, new offensive coordinator, new offense to learn, no offense, injuries around them. But the reason why I have patience for Drew Locke when I don't for Daniel Jones is because Drew Locke is simply more talented. Like there's a higher ceiling there and I I see more high level throws that make me go, oh, wow, it's a big play. And I don't, the times when I go, it's a big play from Daniel Jones is when he runs the football. So I don't see enough from his arm to encourage me. And Drew Locke, man, he's making a lot of good plays. And Drew's play, uh, Drew Locke's playing better football. And take a drink every time I say Drew Locke, and I've said it a lot. Uh, Drew is playing better football now than he did early on in the year. Uh, he had an awesome touchdown pass in the left corner to Noah Fant against the Bills into a really tight window. Uh, he did have a fumble. That fumble was one the Bills took for a touchdown. It's a costly turnover. And Buffalo dropped two interceptions where... If they catch those, it would be a lot harder to justify having patience for Drew. But he's improving, and he looks more and more comfortable in the offense every time I watch him. And he's stepping up in the pocket. He's doing little things that are better and making progress. And I just I maintain that I want to see Drew Locke in Denver next year, in year two with Pat Shermer's offense, with a real offseason, and all of his teammates and all of his weapons on offense hopefully back and fully healthy, Cortland Sutton back. Uh, you know, everybody. I want to see him play with a full repertoire of weapons around him in an offense again that he's more comfortable with in year two. And I, I just, I continue to have patience for Drew Locke. I'm okay with what he's doing. I think he's making mistakes, but he's learning. Appears to be learning from all of them. And I'm seeing enough good stuff from Drew Locke to go, yeah, I, I can maintain to have patience for this guy. And I want to see him very badly play next year for Denver. All right, uh, I'm going to take a short break. I apologize. I think that was a weird transition. I just literally shifted from college football to the NFL. I should have said, like, 
let's now talk about the NFL. It was kind of weird. I'm sure you were like kind of jarred. Sorry about that. Um, coming up, I want to talk about the Packers and the Panthers. We'll talk about the Pac-12 championship game. That is USC against Oregon. We'll talk about the Raiders Chargers. The Jets won their game. Like, oh my gosh, the Jets won a game? That's crazy. And we'll talk about Tua. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. All that and more when I return. All right, we are back. Hope we're doing very, very well. Welcome in, Jets fans. Let's talk about something really, really fun. The Jets just won their first game of the year. They beat the Rams 23-20. to Kind of blows them on. Believe it or not, actually, dare I say, the Jets kind of played a good football game. I went, oh, I guess. Quality football. And even more crazy is the Jets actually never trailed the entire game. They, they took the lead early. They blocked a punt. And uh, they had the lead the whole way. Jets quarterback Sam Darnold had a good game. Uh, Quinnen Williams, the Jets, uh, 2019 number three overall pick, played very, very well. Uh, the Rams did not run the ball exceptionally well. Again, they had the blocked punt. Uh, they are the longest run of the day by the LA Rams was by a receiver. Uh, 40 had run by Robert Woods. Uh, the Rams had a number of drops, and uh, their quarterback, Jared Goff, really struggled. And I think it's kind of a, it's not a new thing, but it's been known for a while, and it's it's a recurring problem for Jared Goff, that Jared Goff really, really struggles in a messy pocket with bodies around him, bodies around his feet. He hates feeling pressure. His accuracy falls apart, and it, he just it's very, very uncomfortable. He's not the same quarterback under pressure. And we've seen a lot of moments of, I guess, mediocre moments from Jared Goff this year and throughout his career. This felt like one of those moments where he just was not that impressive. He, he it's just, I don't know, man. I, I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for Jared Goff to turn it on, and and it never happened. So uh, right now the Jets are one and thirteen, and crazily enough, uh, now the Jets. If the draft happened tomorrow, the Jets would, in fact, have not the number one overall pick, but the number two overall pick in the NFL draft. Uh, the Jets and the Jaguars are both 1-13, and 13, and because the Jaguars had an easier schedule, uh, to have that bad of a record with an easier schedule, uh, the Jaguars are therefore deemed the worst team in the NFL's eyes, so... If the Jaguars and the Jets both go 1-15, then the Jaguars are going to get the number one overall pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. Kind of crazy. So then the Jaguars would get the number one overall pick and be able to draft Trevor Lawrence, their quarterback out of Clemson. And it, it's pretty wild, man. I, I feel very bad for Jets fans. Like, their team is so bad that they can't even tank properly. It, it's a funny thing to say, but it's true. It's like, of course, of course the New York Jets couldn't even get Sam, uh, couldn't even get Trevor Lawrence. Of course they screwed even that up. Now, quite honestly, I would rather see Trevor Lawrence on the Jaguars than on the New York Jets. I, I think it's a real possibility now. And there's actually some good, young, talented players in Jacksonville, uh, both on offense and on defense. Here's a couple to name a few. You'd have... Uh, DJ Chark at receiver, James Robinson at running back, uh, Josh Allen on D-line, Caleb on Chase, I guess he's an edge rusher, Caleb on Chase on, uh, Miles Jack, CJ Henderson. That's just a couple of the guys. And there's a lot of, there's some quality players in Jacksonville. And I am confident that Trevor Lawrence could actually turn around the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm much more confident he could turn around the Jaguars 
than the New York Jets. I mean, the Jets are just a black hole of despair. I would never, ever wish uh, anybody to play for them. It's terrible. Avoid the Jets at all costs. I mean, Sam Darnold couldn't save the the Jets. I don't know why. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, I think, is probably a better quarterback than Sam Darnold, but is it enough to save them? I don't think so. I mean, the organization is a problem from top to bottom. And uh, the Jets' problems feel impossible to overcome. I, I feel bad. Look, I, I know that Jets fans are mad at me saying that, but I, I don't choose who you root for. You chose to be a Jets fan, and I don't understand why you would choose that life. That sounds terrible. But it's not Trevor Lawrence's job to turn around the Jets. It's Trevor Lawrence's job to worry about Trevor Lawrence. And I don't think it's in anybody's best interest to play for the Jets. They're probably going to get Justin Fields now. Uh, but I think... The interesting party in all this is Sam Darnold. Because I am genuinely curious what happens in the future for Sam Darnold. I still believe in Sam. Uh, The dude makes a lot of plays that I think a lot of people simply don't ever notice or somehow just miss and no one talks about. And I I really want to see Sam Darnold get a fresh start with a hopefully good coach. Maybe with the Steelers or the Saints or the Panthers or the Patriots or the 49ers. I mean, imagine Sam Darnold playing for Sean Payton or Kyle Shanahan. I mean, somebody could help save Sam Darnold, and it's not the Jets. (laughs) So I want to see Sam get out of New York. Uh, And, I mean, imagine if he had Kyle Shanahan instead of Adam Gase. What could happen for Sam Darnold? I feel it could be probably a much different— because there's obvious talent by Sam Darnold. The plays he makes, the stuff he does, they're— Go watch a Jets game. You're like, oh, wow, that's a great throw. And you'll say that occasionally and go, huh, there's something there with Sam Darnold. He's not totally hopeless. And uh, it seems like there are some trade rumors. I mean, it it appears like somebody might be willing to make a move for Sam Darnold. So uh, this offseason, I'd love to see it. I want to see Sam get out of there. I want to see Trevor Lawrence go to the Jaguars. And I want to see, I I like Trevor more than Justin Fields. So I I wouldn't, I, 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 I don't want anybody to go to the Jets, but if anybody's going to do it, I'd rather see. I just I think Trevor Lawrence is this incredibly talented, amazing quarterback, and I, I would hate to see his career wasted on the Jets, and now it may not be. I want to see Trevor Lawrence on the Jaguars with a team that actually, again, I'm, I'm telling you, there's some talent in Jacksonville, and if they get Trevor Lawrence, I would feel very encouraged that the Jaguars can turn things around and— uh become a winning franchise. I really, I truly believe that in my heart of hearts. I'm like, oh, Trevor Lawrence on the Jaguars is fun, is interesting, and has the potential for something very, very special. And I certainly did not feel that way about Trevor Lawrence on the New York Jets. Okay, uh, let's shift gears to Miami. There is a group of people who criticize the Miami Dolphins for picking quarterback Tua Tungavaloa instead of Justin Herbert, the quarterback out of Oregon. And, and to be totally fair and transparent and honest, it's only fair that I say, if I were picking in the 2020 NFL draft for Miami, I would have taken Tua over Justin Herbert. I, I had no idea Justin Herbert would become what he became. I, I recognized his potential, but I on tape, I saw too many problems with Justin Herbert, and I, I thought the only person to blame could potentially be Justin Herbert. I'm like, why are there the same mistakes over and over and over again? And it turns out, in my opinion, pretty clearly, the problem with Justin Herbert in college was either his school was distracting him or more likely he wasn't getting great quarterback coaching 
And as as Justin's rookie year has unfolded, it's become very, very clear. Justin is going to be a fantastic NFL quarterback. He looks like the NFL rookie of the year. He's explosive. He's making crazy plays. And uh, unfortunately, in the NFL draft, Miami chose Tua number five overall, which sent Justin Herbert number six overall to the L.A. Chargers. So they passed on Justin. They got Tua instead. And again, we've seen this year. Justin Herbert is more explosive than Tua. He's uh, a bigger, better athlete, runs very, very well, can move around, extend plays better than Tua. He's got a bigger, stronger arm. And whereas Justin is explosive and a big playmaker, Tua is a distributor. He's he's more mundane. It's not bad. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I, Tua is one of my favorite players. I want a shirt with Tua, has little Tua faces all over. Like, I love Tua Tungvaloa. And he's playing very well. I mean, he's running the Dolphins offense at uh, at a good reasonable pace and that's uh, not the right word there he's running the Dolphins offense very well he's four and two as a starter he's winning games but while Tua's been very solid and very good he's being overshadowed by Justin Herbert he's been fantastic and phenomenal and lighting up the scoreboard every week now Justin isn't winning no one seems to care about that but it, see, neither here nor there uh, I would also say, by the way, Justin Herbert does have better receivers than Tua. He's got Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, who are two top-notch playmakers in the NFL. Uh, but Miami needs to make the playoffs. Uh, it's the best way to give an answer to anybody who doubts Miami for drafting Tua. Like, look, you might say we got the wrong guy. We're winning. It's going well. It's working. And it may not be showing up. Like, fantasy football is not real football. <laughs> yeah. Fantasy football drives me nuts. I really, really hate it. And just because the numbers from Tua aren't as high and as big from Herbert doesn't mean Tua isn't playing well. Uh, and right now, the Dolphins are 9-5. and five. They just beat the Patriots, a, a big win. Like, oh, kind of interesting, like, how things have changed in the AFC East. And if the playoffs started today, the Dolphins would be the number seven seed in the AFC playoffs. They, are, they would be the last team chosen to be in the AFC playoff picture. And with two games left, uh, Miami plays at the Raiders and then uh, Week 17 at the Buffalo Bills, a divisional game. We'll see if Buffalo plays their starters or not. I sure, I'm sure they would because they want to eliminate a division rival. People like doing that. They like sticking at two teams they play twice a year. It's going to be a fun end of the year. And I really want to track, can Miami get into the playoffs? We'll find out. Uh, but I, I really think that it helps if Tua can get into the playoffs and... Uh, win a playoff game or not, anybody who doubts Tua, he can say, look, you might not like me, but at least I'm winning. I'm winning. I'm getting in the playoffs. Like, I I'm sorry I'm not Justin Herbert, but the only way he can answer criticism is to prove people on the field and play very well. And I, I love Tua the person. He's like a great dude. I really, really like him as a human. Uh, and by the way, I do believe also that Tua has the right offensive coordinator, Chan Gailey. Chan Gailey has been calling plays that are, are suited to, to his skill set, is getting the ball out of his hands very quickly. And I, I really also, he's got some cool creative play calls. He had a, a really fun two-point conversion he called against the Patriots on Sunday with a, it was a, it was like a goal line hook and ladder. You throw a, a screen pass out wide, the running back followed the pass, caught a, a lateral from the receiver, ran in for a two-point conversion. I'm like, oh, that's just fascinating and cool. So I like Chan Gailey. I think, Tua is in a great position to succeed. I want to see them get another weapon on offense in the draft this upcoming year. But I like Tua, 
And I think the only way he can answer any criticism from people who think he should not have been drafted by Miami is to make the playoffs and keep winning. Okay, uh, another Saturday game. The Packers beat the Carolina Panthers 24-16 to on Saturday. It was not exactly the most exciting game. Uh, Green Bay was up 21-3 to at halftime. Now, Green Bay only scored three points in the second half. Carolina closed the gap. Uh, but I, I really walked away from this game really with a couple takeaways. Number one, I feel very, very confident that Aaron Rodgers is going to win the NFL MVP. He had two more touchdowns in this game. He had one throwing, one running. Uh, and the MVP, this, to be totally blunt, is about having impressive numbers and having an impressive year. And Aaron Rodgers is having exactly that. He's got 40 touchdown passes, uh, four interceptions. That's an impressive, you know, 10 to 1 uh, touchdown to interception ratio. People go, woo, numbers. A lot of people love fantasy football crap. Uh, he also, the impressive year thing is that what's impressive about what Aaron Rodgers is doing is he's got fewer weapons than a quarterback like, you know, the other guy in the race for the MVP is Patrick Mahomes. But Patrick Mahomes has just talent galore all around him. Aaron Rodgers doesn't have that. It's also a great story because the Packers drafted Jordan Love in the first round, presumably to replace uh, Aaron Rodgers down the road. And for him to have his team draft a guy to replace him and then that very same year win an MVP would be a pretty cool stick it to the organization. So for all those reasons, the story, the numbers, the, the fact that his team is not as impressive as other people that might be in the MVP race, I believe Aaron Rodgers is going to win the NFL MVP. He's got 43 total touchdowns, impressive numbers, good story, uh, a good, you know, a good. What, what's the the context around him makes sense to win the MVP. Uh, I think most valuable works pretty well for Aaron Rodgers. I am confident Aaron Rodgers is going to win the NFL MVP. Now, after this game, the Packers are 11 and three. They are now alone as the number one seed in the NFC. And there are two weeks left in the year. If they get the number one seed in the NFC, they will have a bye week uh, for the first week of the NFL playoffs. So the only team, only the number one seed this year gets a bye week in the NFL playoffs. The Packers are 11-3. and three. The Saints and Seattle are 10-4. and four. So, I, man, I, I want to see, I'd love to see Green Bay continue to hold that number one overall seed. And uh, we'll see what Green Bay can do in the playoffs. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested and fascinated in their team. Now, the Panthers, uh, this game really made me only think of two things uh, for the Panthers. Number one, I think Teddy Bridgewater is a very fine quarterback, and he's exactly the quarterback who can help Carolina transition from Teddy to into a franchise quarterback being Zach Wilson or Mac Jones. I mean, Teddy is the right guy to fill the gap until they can get Zach Wilson ready or Mac Jones ready, depending on who they draft in the 2021 NFL draft. I also do want to give a shout-out to the Carolina Panthers' defensive line. You may or may not be paying attention. Uh, Derek Brown for the Panthers had two sacks, uh, the defensive tackle, rookie for Carolina. Uh, and Panthers' defensive end, Brian Burns, had two sacks on Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Carolina's got this good foundation on their defensive line. They got a 2019 first-round pick, D-end uh, Brian Burns. They got a 2020 first-round pick, D-tackle Derek Brown. Uh, plus, they also have a second-round pick from 2020, uh, Eter Gross Matos at defensive end as well, assuming he can develop into a guy who can be a starter and an impact player. He's very, very talented. I loved him at Penn State in college. The future future appears to be bright in Carolina. I like their coaching staff. I like what they've brought in. 
And it also, I really like the foundation they have on their defensive line. I just, I encourage people, keep giving Carolina patience. They got Matt Rule, a new head coach. They got Joe Brady, an offensive coordinator. They're probably going to get a franchise quarterback in the draft coming up. And uh, I really, really believe in what the Carolina Panthers are doing. I told people at the beginning of the year, give them patience. They're not going to win a lot this year. I knew they wouldn't. Uh, Matt Rule has turned a lot of programs around, uh, or, or I guess franchises around in this case. Uh, Matt Rule has taken a lot of bad football teams and got them to winning games. But in the first year, it, they didn't win games. I mean, it, it takes a while for Matt Rule to build this culture and turn a losing organization into a winning organization. And we'll just, it's going to take time, but I really do believe in the Carolina Panthers long term. They're going to turn things around in Carolina. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a short break. When I return, we'll do the final segment of the show. We'll talk about the Pac-12 championship game. We'll talk about, that's, that's USC against Oregon. We'll talk about uh, the Thursday night football game, the Raiders and the Chargers. And we'll end with a surprising, exciting, uh, energizing Formula One story at the very, very end of the show. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope we're doing very, very well. In the Pac-12 championship game, Oregon beat USC 31-24. to And the outcome does not surprise me uh, in the slightest. Oregon is better up front. Oregon is better in short yardage on third and one, on fourth and one, on the goal line. And so, shout out to Oregon. Uh, it's their second year in a row winning the Pac-12 title. They are back-to-back champions. It's kind of funny. There were rumors circulating that maybe uh, Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal would go to Auburn. I laughed at that. I said, no way. I mean, why would you leave a really good, secure job in Oregon where you're dominating to go to Auburn? Uh, it didn't make sense to me. And then, yeah, Mario Cristobal signed a long-term contract extension with Oregon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not shocked. Uh, Mario Cristobal is in a great position so really, he's building a program there that's slowly but surely, I believe, going to become nationally recognized, and he's going to dominate the Pac-12. And, uh, you know, I also want to say it's kind of interesting. The backstory to this Pac-12 championship game, the Pac-12 botched the whole year. Uh, UW was supposed to play in the conference championship for you know represent the Pac-12 North. They got a COVID outbreak, so Oregon came in to substitute for them. And uh, now Oregon, at 4-2, and two, is the Pac-12 champion. So the Pac-12, pff, man, uh, I think the problem with the Pac-12, no, no, first of all, the Pac-12 is very competitive. It's actually, if you watch the Pac-12 in a vacuum, it, it's really entertaining, fun football. Like, feels like any team can beat any other team. There's not really a dominating force in the Pac-12. Uh, if any, I mean, Oregon, historically, I think it's dominated because of Chip Kelly's days and then the Mark Elfrich era, briefly, and... Uh, you know, Oregon is back on top again. Like, Oregon has been the dominating team recently, but even they haven't been dominating and crushing other Pac-12 schools. And that's kind of the problem with the Pac-12 is that there's no top dog who dominates everybody else, and therefore there's no top dog who can hang nationally with Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson. And so on a national level, the Pac-12 is in trouble because although Oregon is making progress, and I, I like Oregon— Again, they don't have a top dog, and if anybody, it is Oregon, but Oregon's still a year or two away from becoming a team that is uh, on the national stage. They're headed that direction, it feels like, uh, but Oregon is not competitive with Alabama or Ohio State or Auburn. Now, the game itself, uh, Oregon had a unique package I want to give them credit for. 
Uh, they had their backup quarterback, Anthony Brown, a senior grad transfer from Boston College. Hadn't played at all this year. They put in this package against the USC where, you know, Anthony Brown was playing quarterback uh, on third down and fourth down and the goal line on short yardage situations. Anthony Brown was three for four passing. He had two touchdowns. It was a very, very effective package. I'm like to be a, a senior grad transfer quarterback who hasn't played all year to suddenly have two touchdown passes. That's pretty cool. Pretty exciting. I also want to give a shout out to Oregon running back Travis Dye. He had a touchdown catch. Uh, and I, I love that Travis Dye wears no accessories, no wristbands, no fancy stuff. He's just a guy who plays hard and is a dude who is a very, very good football player. I like Travis Dye a lot. Personality, playing style, everything. He's, he's a really kind of feels like a blue collar guy who I really like his style. Now, most of my notes from this game were about USC. Uh, Oregon, Tyler Shell, the quarterback for Oregon, was not that impressive. Like, there's not a lot of stuff I go, wow, Oregon. A lot of really felt like uh, USC botched a lot of stuff. I mean, a couple of USC's key playmakers in this game had some costly mistakes. And USC simply made far too many mistakes to win this game. But I do want to start with the good news. The good news is that I love watching USC receiver Drake London play football. He's a sophomore. Uh, he's listed as a receiver against Oregon at eight catches for 75 yards. I say he's listed as a receiver. He's really a, he works, operates kind of like a tight end in this Graham Harrell USC offense. He gets a lot of catches over the middle. He's a big physical receiver. Uh, and he works as a security blanket for the USC quarterback, Keaton Slovis. Shout out to Drake London. He's awesome. I love him. And I haven't really given him a lot of shine this year. So I want to give him a shout out before the year is now over. Um, now, a lot went wrong for USC in the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, they missed a field goal. They couldn't run the ball. They ran the ball literally 28 times for 38 yards. That's terrible. And, uh, you know, at the end of the first quarter, for example, they had a, a fourth and one. Really, it was like it was fourth and six inches. Like, it was fourth and nothing. And ball on the 43-yard line going in, trying to keep your drive alive. And USC got stopped in the backfield. They actually lost yards. I mean, USC cannot do anything in the running game in short-yarded situations. And next year, I want to see USC evolve their running game. It's really important that they improve on third and one, on fourth and one, on the goal line. They do not run the ball effectively, especially in short yardage. And it's not good. And I really hope that USC looks at Oklahoma's head coach, Lincoln Riley, and steals some of the schemes he's running at Oklahoma and implements what they're doing with their offense and transitions a little bit of what they're doing. They need to expand their offense and evolve their running game. It's a huge deal that USC can figure out how to do that. Otherwise, they're going to have a ceiling forever where and a hump they can't get over at USC. They can put up big numbers and win a lot of games, but there is a ceiling because they don't do well in short yardage. It's a, it's a, it's a cap to the ceiling of USC. Now, by the way, USC star safety, Talanoa Hufunga, guy I love, great player, had a bad game in the Pac-12 championship against Oregon. He missed a tackle on the goal line that uh, cost USC a touchdown, you know, gave up a touchdown. He dropped an interception in the end zone, That another costly thing. Uh, and then he had a, a really important, and, and I guess the word costly is the thing here, but I, I feel like every mistake Talanoa Hufunga made in this game was a big impactful one he had a roughing the kicker penalty that kept a drive alive for Oregon on fourth down and it led to later an Oregon field goal so Talanoa Hufunga had a bad day and then the hardest part of this game for me I, I hate saying this because I, I love the guy 
Uh, my favorite quarterback in college football, Keaton Slovis, had a bad day. And he had three interceptions. And I, I don't know that bad day is the right way to put it. Like, Keaton, if you're watching, I love you, man. And I, uh, it was just tough. He's only a sophomore. He had some good learning moments. Uh, he had a, an interception where you know, he left the ball too far inside. Uh, I, I'm not going to break down his interceptions. In the first half, both of his interceptions led to uh, Oregon touchdowns. And then later, you know, however, despite all the mistakes USC made, the Talanoa Funga, the, the botched fourth and one, the missed field goal, despite all the problems USC had, they actually had an opportunity to tie the game up in the fourth quarter. Uh, and Keaton threw a great deep ball down the left sideline to Brew McCoy. Brew McCoy, it's right in his breadbasket. Great ball. It's on the seven-yard line. And Brew McCoy drops it. And you're like, oh, man. It was literally like a beautiful throw over the shoulder to Brew McCoy, and he, he dropped what would have been likely, I mean, it would have either been a touchdown or set up a touchdown to tie the game for USC instead of the touchdown because of the drop by Brew McCoy. Uh, it was a costly drop because later in the drive, Keaton was trying to throw the ball away out of bounds. It looked like the ball got away from him. It drifted a little too far inside near the sideline. Oregon grabbed it for an interception. They reviewed it. Uh, it was overturned. It was ruled, ruled incomplete, then overturned on the review ruled an interception ball game. Uh, USC lost the, the ball in their final possession. And uh, I just, man, like, ah, dang it, man. I was watching just so, like, man, my favorite quarterback. Ah, I was really disappointed. I really, uh, it's unfortunate. But I think in spite of the three interceptions, uh, I know people look at the stat line and judge harshly. Stats are not everything. I, I thought Keaton played very well other than those three mistakes, which are costly. And I, I'm sure he takes it pretty hard. I, I really, again, I love the guy. Uh, it is worth noting, though, that late in the game, USC's best receiver, Amon Ross St. Brown, was out of the game with an injury. So that definitely didn't hurt or didn't help USC. Uh, now, USC has opted out of a bowl game. Their season is over. They finished 5-1. and one. Kind of the big takeaway from this year is that, you know, USC quarterback Keaton Slovis had, had a great year. I mean, he had three fourth-quarter comebacks. That's three of the six games USC played. At least half of them were games where Keaton Slovis rescued and saved the day in the fourth quarter with great throws at the end. And that's, I mean, if you're going to say anything about your year, at least you can say that. That's pretty great. And, I mean, unfortunately, the the comeback couldn't be made against Oregon. But to have to ask your quarterback to make four fourth-quarter comebacks in four of your six games, that's... I, I understand that part of the, the problem is Keaton put them in the hole with interceptions against Oregon. Like, fair enough. Uh, but... Man, like, your quarterback shouldn't be having to rescue that a every single game. And that's not all on Keaton. He's a sophomore quarterback. You can't put it all on him. And the reality is, in my opinion, I thought USC kind of overachieved this year. I mean, they really they had problems on the offensive line. They had discipline problems on defense. They had all kinds of little problems. And they barely beat Arizona State. They barely beat U uh, UCLA. They barely beat Arizona, who was 0-5. So I, I thought that USC... The word is overachieved. I mean, they 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 had an undefeated record. I don't know that they were as good as their record really showed. And it, the fact that Keaton Slovis had to keep rescuing USC, it's just not a good thing. I mean, your team shouldn't mean to be rescued by your quarterback every single week. And uh, their quarterback helped hide some of their larger problems all around their program that I hope get addressed this offseason. So uh, USC, 5-1. and one. I just, Keaton's a darling, man. He's my favorite quarterback in college football. Love the guy. He's a former uh, first-round quarterback, in my opinion. We'll see how he keeps progressing, but uh, I just uh, I think the ball got away from him a little bit this year. A little stuff to work on, but um, 
I'm a huge fan of Keaton Slovis. I, I was sad to watch USC lose. It's one of the first games all year where I'm like, I was just watching as a fan, really, really rooting for USC, and uh, it didn't happen on, on Friday, so I was pretty sad about that. Now, let's shift to the NFL. On Thursday night football, the Chargers beat the Raiders 30-27 to in overtime. It was a really fun game. Here's what happened in overtime. In overtime, the Raiders got the ball first. Uh, they kicked a field goal. Because it's a field goal, the Chargers got an opportunity to respond. The Chargers drove down the field. They won the game with a touchdown. Justin Herbert had a quarterback sneak on the goal line for the game-winning touchdown. Uh, and now, the Raiders are now 7-7. Seven and seven. And it's, it's really hard to see the Raiders making the playoffs now. They've fallen really far from grace. Uh, the next two games for Vegas are they play Miami at home, then they play at Denver. Uh, Denver and Miami are both playing good football right now, so that's, those are two tough wins. To even finish 9-7 and seven seems like a, a really hard challenge for the Raiders. And uh, Henry Ruggs didn't play in this game. He's on the COVID reserve list. At least he was in this game in, in, you know, last week uh, on Thursday. Derek Carr... On the second drive of the game for the Raiders, hurt his groin, and uh, he's actually going to be out for a little bit for a little while. And so the Raiders lost, and a lot of people were very, very mad at the Raiders. Like, oh, John Gruden, we want his head, and I, I love John Gruden, and I, I know that, and we'll talk about what John Gruden should and should not get a pass for. I, I give John Gruden a pass for this loss. Anytime your quarterback goes down with an injury, like, do you really expect to win the game? I mean, it's. Marcus Mariota played well, but you got to give Gruden credit. The fact that the game was even close is, is impressive to me. And what I think, if you're going to blame John Gruden for anything, blame him for the fact that the Raiders are 1-4 and four in the last five games. Don't blame him for losing to the Chargers in a game where your starting quarterback got hurt. Blame him for the other games leading up to that game. That's Be mad about that. Be mad about the defense. But I don't think it's quite fair to be mad at the Raiders for losing this game where their starting quarterback got hurt. Uh, now, because Derek Carr got hurt, and he's going to be out for a little while. Looks like he's going to be out at least next week, maybe two weeks. Uh, because Derek Cargarder, Marcus Mariota played most of the game for the Las Vegas Raiders. And it was, it was really, really fun because, you know, on Thursday you had two former quarterback, Oregon quarterbacks. You had Marcus Mariota squaring off against Justin Herbert, two former Oregon quarterbacks. And then the next day on Friday... After watching two Oregon former Oregon quarterbacks playing against each other, the next day Oregon won the Pac-12 championship game. So it was like kind of the weekend was all Oregon everything to start Thursday and Friday. And uh, Mariota did very, very well. Marcus Mariota was 17 for 28 passing at 226 yards passing, uh, one touchdown, one interception. He also ran nine times for 88 yards and another touchdown. I absolutely love watching Marcus Mariota play well. Humble dude, great guy. I don't know how anybody can root against him. Just a very good, clearly a great human being. And it is a bit early for the Derek Carr uh, versus Marcus Mariota conversation. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, again, Derek Carr might be out two weeks. He's definitely out next week. And so we'll see how Mariota does against the Dolphins next week. If he does well there, then we can have the conversation. What should the Raiders do between Marcus Mariota and Derek Carr? I will say this game, the Dolphins and the Raiders, is a really fun matchup because it's two quarterbacks from Hawaii, Marcus Mariota against Tua Tungavaloa. Uh, they both actually went to St. Louis High School on Oahu, the island, of, the Hawaiian island, the biggest, uh, most populous Hawaiian island. Not the biggest in square miles, but the most populated island in the Hawaiian Islands uh, chain. And uh, if, again, if Marcus plays well against Miami, then we can start the conversation of should Marcus be the guy 
or Derek Carr, but we're not there yet. And uh, now the Chargers, against the Raiders, a couple of young receivers uh, made some plays. Uh, Jalen Guyton from North Texas, a guy who's technically, I, I can't tell, he's, it's the first year getting reps in the NFL. Rookie or not, I, can, I couldn't tell you. I don't think he is because he's been a, he's been out of college for a while. Uh, he had four catches for 91 yards. Jalen Guyton has been making an impact this year when I like just getting more and more catches and more and more reps. And uh, Tyron Johnson, a former practice squad guy against the Raiders, had three catches for 61 y- one yards and a touchdown. And uh, Justin Herbert was really, really, really great on Thursday. Justin Herbert was 22 for 32 passing, had 314 yards, two touchdowns uh, passing, no interceptions. Also had that game-winning quarterback sneak for a touchdown in overtime. Justin Herbert just makes me very, very excited. I mean, Justin Herbert is a guy who has so much potential and is progressing very, very quickly week to week. Now, you still see some small mistakes, uh, I think forgivable mistakes from Justin. But when I look around, uh, kind of the terrifying thought is when you look around at all the rookie quarterbacks, you look at Joe Burrow and Tua Tungvaloa, Justin Herbert, Jalen Hurts. Of all the rookie quarterbacks playing right now in the NFL— and Joe Burrow has played. Justin Herbert has the highest ceiling. He has the most potential. He's got the most physical gifts where he's a big dude who can run. Like, I mean, he is a fast guy who can escape sacks and, you know, push bodies off of him. And he's got a rocket arm. So he's a threat to run. He's a threat to, you know, break tackles. And he's a threat to throw for a ton of yards and throw very far vertically downfield and accurately vertically downfield. It feels like, so Justin has the most potential of all the rookie quarterbacks, and it feels like he's likely to realize all that potential because he's doing so well as a rookie uh, this year. Clearly, he's working very hard. He's getting better week to week, and it's a big deal. I just want to give props and credit to Justin Herbert. He's playing so well, and uh, it's very, very cool to see. I thought uh, the win on Thursday over the Raiders was a prime example of the progress and the, the way Justin's playing. It's just like, man, like, Justin went head-to-head against Marcus Mariota and the Raiders, and Justin came out on top. I, I love seeing that. Uh, let's shift gears. The final topic that I want to talk about, Formula One. It was just announced that, that Sergio Perez is going to drive for Red Bull Racing in F1 in 2021 next year. Uh, Alex Albin moves down. He will be the test and reserve driver for Red Bull. Now, hearing that Red Bull is going to have Sergio Perez drive for them, it made me so... So happy. I went, ah, yes! I, went, I just was elated because Sergio Perez deserves to have a drive in F1. And to have a guy win an F1 race and finish fourth in the driver's standings and then simply not have anywhere to race in F1, it would have been ridiculous if Sergio Perez was the odd man out in F1. Uh, I, I was really nervous that Sergio Perez was actually, in spite of his late season success was actually still not going to find a spot to race in F1 because of Formula One is notorious for having all kinds of politics. And, you know, I would even say the word corruption and financial stuff and all this nonsense. And so I was not sure that Sergio Perez was going to find anywhere to race next year in F1 in 2021. Uh, now, I really hope that adding Sergio Perez can help elevate Red Bull. Uh, the problem in 2020 this year was that Red Bull did not have a number two driver who could help Max Verstappen challenge Mercedes. It was always Max Verstappen uh, racing up against the, you know, Valter Bottas and Lewis Hamilton, the two Mercedes, without any help. And so Red Bull really needs Sergio Perez to help challenge them 
challenge the podium positions. You know, if it's if it's Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas, uh, sorry, if it's Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen fighting for first place, the Red Bull versus the Mercedes, then it's got to be Valtteri Bottas and Sergio Perez right behind them. You know, and, and Sergio Perez has to challenge the top three drivers and try to make a push to get podium positioning. And I'm I'm really hopeful that Sergio Perez can be the answer that Red Bull needs uh, to give them the challenging force they need against Mercedes. Now, my only fear is that the car is maybe designed a little bit too much for Max Verstappen. Uh, Red Bull's car, I mean, and then also how quickly can Sergio Perez adapt to the Red Bull car? I mean, so the car is built very much for Max Verstappen's style of driving. And it's very different from the Racing Point pink Mercedes where the Racing Point car was longer and faster in a straight line. The Red Bull car is not as fast in a straight line. It's not as long. It's a shorter car. It's more nimble. It's faster around corners. It's not as doesn't have as much pace on straightaways. And uh, I, man, again, I, I hope that Sergio Perez can help challenge Mercedes for Red Bull. I uh, hope he can adapt to the car. I hope the car isn't just only built for Max Verstappen. I, I hope Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez can work together and be a team that can challenge Mercedes. Because I, as much as I respect Mercedes, I want to see them get challenged and have to earn it more and uh, have it be even harder for Mercedes to win a championship next year. And I, I really, I think for the sport of F1, it's possible that Sergio Perez can help Red Bull be the thing that makes the sport even more interesting as making Mercedes squirm a little bit and have a harder time winning every single race, race, uh, race in and race out. And I just am so, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I'm very, very hopeful that race, uh, Sergio Perez can be the answer to my prayers and help Red Bull challenge Mercedes next year in Formula One. Guys, that's all I have. It's been what an hour and a half, something a little bit longer. Uh, I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. But um, bum, bam, we are done.